This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Fuck it, I'm just going to start it over and just go with it. Um. All right. Thanks. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to this show. We're going to bring we're bringing you another episode. They're getting harder and harder to start. I've noticed for Spencer and I. Um, I don't know if it's because we think we're so funny, but <laughs> yeah. But but we're starting it. We don't know how to start these things, but but here we are. the uh, The show is doing really well. It's actually doing. Uh, it's super. It's quite healthy. Uh, kind of in spite of us. I don't. I don't know why it's it's going so well. It's kind of like it's like a succulent. Like it's just we're not paying much attention to it, but it lives anyway. And um, and here it is. And so we do want to thank you guys again for all the support. The reviews keep coming in. They're good reviews. Uh, we're doing really well on iTunes. Uh, we're getting a lot of recommendations on Facebook. And uh, you guys have been amazing. And everything you guys have been doing has been awesome. You guys have been sending us uh, a lot of calls to review. And we want to thank you and at the same time apologize that we don't get through all of them. Obviously, we can't do an episode on every single one that comes in um, until it dries up. And then we will be going through a back catalog. But uh, until then. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So generally speaking, when we get these uh, calls, uh, sometimes we even get the opportunity to interview you guys before we do the call. We'll always let you know if we use your call. It'll never be one of these where I'm like, gosh, I think that's my call. And you would probably be surprised how many of these calls are actually quite similar to each other. Um, but I will say this call in particular, uh, both Spencer and I looked at it and... The nearest guess as to what we can think went wrong is something that Spencer and I not only have never experienced, had not even heard of or knew existed prior to this call. So we actually ended up interviewing the guys that sent us the call. Uh, it's a good call. It's a good one to follow up with uh, uh, from our last call because this is going to be another asthma patient. A little bit of a spoiler alert there. And um, yeah. Yeah. And so the only other thing that I'd like to add in is that, uh, you know, one of the things that like our job on EMS 2020, the reason this podcast exists is that we review calls and try and find lessons out of them. And I will say this disclaimer because I know the two medics are going to be listening right now. And we did an interview with them and I went back and started writing the episode and we, I did come up with a few extra thoughts that I hadn't run by them. And the big takeaway lesson from this call, it's going to be this guys, uh, for everyone listening, Sometimes shit happens and sometimes there's just not a ton you're going to be able to do about it, but try your best. Um, so while we do have some things to bring up uh, that maybe could have been different and also keep in mind, these are things that we came up with uh, after we interviewed them, read the call, sat on it for a couple days, wrote it out and they were like, oh, hey, so it's not fair to judge anybody, yeah. uh, anybody by this, but um there are some things we're going to bring up. So with that, uh, shit, well, let me just get into the call. Yeah, let's do it, man. All right. So here's the call. Uh, so sent to us by a crew that works in a rural uh, ALS system, advanced life support system. Uh, the crew is a dual paramedic crew and the responding fire resource is an engine that's staffed by two uh, BLS personnel, basically life support guys. I'm not sure if they're EMT basics or first responders or what their cert level is. Um mm. 
but uh, it's not really going to play too much of a role here. All we know is that they are BLS. So the call is to a residence that has a long history of EMS responses. So as they're going, they have some sort of uh, mobile data, data terminal uh, within the rig. And that pops up and shows that there's about 20 some calls on their computer uh, for this address uh, for anxiety uh, and asthma related calls. So the call is triage is a code three, which is lights and sirens in this particular municipality. So our crew, and here's the thing, we don't always allow this. In fact, usually we don't, but we let these people, uh, we let these guys pick their own uh, names. We let them pick their own nicknames. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. This is true. Yeah, and they picked uh, Patches and then uh, Patches and Goose. And I'm not really sure why he picked Goose. I mean, it's from the movie Top Gun. I was really surprised that he decidedly went with Goose. I mean, Maverick yeah. was sitting there on the table, and just I think ready we to be like, taken. Yeah, we were even like, are you sure you don't want Maverick? And he was like, no, man, I really want Goose. I'm like, how about Iceman? He's like, no, let's go with Goose. And so we're like, <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm like, really? Like, like Goose Goose was like a dad gut away from pretty much being Ryan Styles from, uh, <laughs> from Whose Line Is It Anyway? <laughs> I mean, he exits the movie by ejecting and I mean, like a cockpit kills the guy. Yeah. That's how he dies. He's taken out by a piece of glass. It was, it was hard to watch. Yeah. Almost as hard as it was. was, No, no, no. The movie was fine, but it was hard to watch a man walk away from the opportunity to have the nickname Maverick. Yeah. Maverick Maverick is still up. Just uh, throwing it out there. You know who didn't walk away? That would be Goose. From an ejection seat. (laughs) (laughs) There's a man that didn't walk away. But this guy insisted on being called Goose. So, not Goose it is. So, Patches is a seven-year paramedic. And again, we insisted on Maverick, but he chose Goose. Anyway, uh, Patches is a seven-year paramedic with even more experience as an EMT basic prior to that. uh, Has been on this patient and is somewhat familiar with her medical history. Uh, during the interview, he was telling us that he's been on this patient for both anxiety and asthma calls, which, by the way, can actually be that, that can be difficult to figure out uh, when you get on there because, um, oh, yeah, patients who have asthma attacks and also have anxiety tend to get anxious when they have asthma attacks. And so you kind of walk in being like, oh, they're anxious. It's like, well, that doesn't help me because sometimes they're anxious and it's nothing. Sometimes they're anxious and it's really freaking something. Uh, right. Spoiler alert, today it's the really freaking something uh, version of, <laughs> of, of this call. Uh, so the call is triage code three, like we said, said already. So uh, by the way, uh, so Goose, uh, however, is a five-year paramedic who also has more prior experience uh, as an EMT before this. Both these paramedics actually have a long history of working together and bonus Patches actually has an active role in the agency's uh, quality assurance process. So props there. Yeah, no, super cool. Um, Really good opportunity. If you're a newer medic, see if you can find your way onto a QA board. Yeah. That way you can see what, you know, like objectives, you know, your company is going for, um, what areas of weakness, you know, company wide. It's really cool. It's really eye opening. And most most QA process have some kind of follow up involved as well on each call. And I will say follow up is one of the more vital things that you can get, especially as you're becoming a paramedic to learn how your patients turn out is invaluable. I didn't get that until late in my career. And all of a sudden I was like, holy shit. (laughs) This is eye opening. And so being involved in a QA process early on is good. And then as you gain more experience, like stick with it, you know, because like your your experience 
is great. I mean, it helps you, but if you have your experience help other people, it's even better. So uh, huge props to Patches for being part of his agency's quality assurance process. Uh, it's extra time that he takes uh, to make sure that patients are getting the appropriate treatment. So good on you. So All right. Yeah, so the scene they pull up is one that is quite notable. Uh, they are greeted, and that term's used super loosely here, uh, by a male who is pacing about the outside of the house. He's on his phone, and there's a pit bull on the front stoop that's growling at them with his hair raised. Oh. Yeah, so uh, as an added bonus, the male uh, waltzing about is actually super drunk, too. So it's, uh, that's good, <laughs> it's good times. Uh, so right I've got there. a drunk guy and a pit mm-hmm. bull, and like there's a house, and I'm assuming there's like a gate uh, or some <laughs> some way that it's like being abs- like blocking the pit bull from murdering them, yeah. but also stopping them from gaining access to the house. Th- that's kind of their first barrier they run into because they don't really want to fight the pit bull. They don't have any like stakes to throw as an available <laughs> distraction. Um, that's what they always do in the cartoons. I also imagine <laughs> like in the corner, there's like a guy with a trench coat opening his trench coat offering drugs. Like, and then McGruff the crime dog just hasn't caught him yet. You know, like that's. Kind of- <laughs> I don't know why I'm going this route, but uh, they have to take several attempts to actually get the guy's attention who's like on the phone. And then finally, they're like, hey, we don't want to fight the toothy, growly, angry thing uh, from the porch. Uh, Would you mind removing the dog? And he's like, oh, yeah. And so he does. He removes the toothy, growly, angry thing. So there was there's a medic who told me this story. He lived out on the coast. Small digression here. Uh, He went into a trailer. It's a single wide trailer. There's a guy collapsed you know, prone on the other end of the trailer and in between them is one of those like macaw birds. Every time they try to get close, the fucking macaw would like arch out its wings and hiss at them. And they were like, what? Like we can't fucking get to this guy who's probably dead. Like, fuck. Uh, luckily a neighbor came by and, uh, was friends with the bird. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh, <clears throat> so once they get past, you know, the dog and all that stuff, they, <clears throat> they walk in, they find their 22 year old female patient in obvious respiratory distress, surrounded by a litter of used up albuterol fishes in a quantity oh. that could influence a captain planet episode. There is just, <laughs> yeah, it's a, just a, trash heap of these little bullets just all around her. Uh, so they realize that right away is a sign that the patient has been struggling for a while. Um, and just, we talked about this in the last episode, just keep in mind, breathing patients will hold out, not because they're jerks, not because they're bad at their own healthcare, but it's because a lot of times they can handle their own breathing problem. Patients who have chronic asthma or COPD, they, they're using their inhaler a lot. They use it more than you'll ever know. And they don't call 911 every time they use an inhaler or a home nebulizer setup. They usually just use it. They feel better and they move about their day. So they're going to try to fight their own breathing problem before they call you. So by the time they call you, they're done fighting. And that in and of itself is an important sign to see. So anyway, so they ask her, hey, how long you've been dealing with your symptoms? She holds up four fingers. She's not really able to verbalize much of an answer. Yeah, which kind of tells you enough right there or yeah. it tells you a lot right there. Like it, if you're if your breathing patient can't even really mouth like a four hours, right. four days, four, four. minutes. Like, right. If they can't even do that, then they're they're probably pretty tired of breathing. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and here's and here's the thing. Like the answer to that question doesn't really matter. Uh, in, in terms of your acute treatment, 
because you're not going to be like, oh, they've been struggling with it for four hours. Well, I'm only going to give them albuterol. Ah, four minutes. I'm going to give it. You know, nothing's going to change. Um, yeah. It's just kind of nice to know. It's almost one of those things where it's like it's a good conversation starter to see how well the patient can talk. Yeah. Because that's really what you're looking for, because ultimately it doesn't matter if she if it took her four minutes to get to where she's at. That's just as bad as if it took her four hours. I mean, we're going to talk about the stats in a little bit, but they dropped to the 70s. So 70 percent stats are 70 percent sad. She's sitting in the tripod position. She's using a home nebulizer and her respiratory rate is like stupid high, like getting to the 60s. Like she's one a second. Like basically Lance Armstrong would be tachycardic uh, if that was gotcha. that right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And really quick, she's using a home nebulizer. Just a quick thing. there uh, We do have some listeners that are not in EMS. Home nebulizers used compressed room air to nebulize a treatment. It's basically just air goes through a little uh, container and turns it into a mist and they breathe it in. An EMS nebulizer typically uses compressed oxygen. So they get a lot more oxygen with the medication, but it's otherwise the same medication. Yeah. So uh, the patient is basically what I would interpret based on her interview with the crew kind of a hypoxic panic. Like she's grabbing at the crew's clothing when they get in and she's just, <clears throat> she's doing a lot of these kind of hypoxic panic, hypoxic, hypoxic yeah. agitation kind of signs. So yeah, her brain, her brain knows it's on its way out. Yeah. And this is sort of its last fight to, you know, to breathe. Yeah, exactly. Which again, like breathing is really important. Uh, <laughs> while the crew attempts to reassure her that they are going to help her as if you hear what's going on, patches throws on a pulse ox while Goose listens to lung sounds. Goose isn't able to hear anything. Uh, Goose isn't able to hear much, if anything. So he pulls the ejection seat lever and he has patches to confirm, uh, which by the way, <laughs> is a, uh, uh, which by the way is actually a good move on Goose's part. I like it when crews do this because uh, there are cr- I've run into paramedics out there. It's typically newer paramedics, but I've run into paramedics out there who be like, no, oh, yeah, it sounds fine. And you look at them like, you didn't hear anything, did you? Like that's, you know, like sounds, you know. And so in this case, like, hey, if you can't hear anything, it's totally cool to be like, dude, I don't hear anything. You want to give it a shot? I I also don't like it when people like they're, they treat patients like it's their own karaoke song. Like, no, I listen to lung sounds. I'm the one who listens to it. You don't listen to it. Those are my lung sounds. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. like what? That this <laughs> only I sing black velvet. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so <laughs> black velvet. In the- All right. Uh, so, uh, patches goes ahead and tempts to, uh, to have a listen then, uh, instead of goose, and the SAO2 reading comes back in the 70s while Patches is doing this. And there's a good plethora with that. So it's like a solid 70s. Gotcha. And on top of that, like the skin sucks. It's ashen. Uh, there's cyanosis in the fingers and lips. Heart rate's in the 140s. So Patches comes back and he can't hear anything either. Basically, he's like, this patient's tight. So recognizing that there is bronchoconstriction with like the tight lung sounds and the skin looks like shit in the 70s, uh, Goose draws up. And delivers 0.3 milligrams of Epi 1 to 1000 IM, which I'm going to point out, he already had ready in his pocket. So prior to even getting into the scene when they pulled up, uh, he took a look, saw the patient's history, saw the patient's age, realized what the chief complaint was and figured, you know what? If this is as bad as it could be, I'm going to have this ready. So he prepped himself for success and had it at the ready. We talked in our last episode about how epinephrine can be a more you know aggressive uh, frontline treatment. And uh, the patient being young and severely constricted was a good candidate for Epi. So they gave Epi uh, right off the bat. Absolutely. So, I super approve of that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a solid move. So um, they also, the, the patient was actually at this time still using her, I should point out, was actually still using her at-home nebulizer uh, while they were doing this. So they just kept that going uh, while they got the Epi uh, on board. 
And one thing that I would point out here is even though she is on her own at home nebulizer, uh, they probably should have put her on the, their own nebulizer. The crew did put her on a non-rebreather mask, high flow oxygen, um, but you can rig non-rebreathers pretty easily to have a nebulizer attached to them so it can be hands-free. And that is one thing that I would change here. Throw the NRB on her, get some nebulized albuterol that's being driven by some oxygen uh, through, uh, through that as well. Given she's so clamped down, and remember albuterol does require lung compliance. She doesn't have much. She's not moving a ton of air, so would it have really made a huge difference? Uh, maybe not, uh, but in this case, it's, uh, it's certainly something that wouldn't hurt and can be done uh, pretty quick. They did ask uh, what hospital she wanted, so she's able to wheeze out St. Francis of Mountain State University Medical Center Hospital. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. See, she, yeah, they got that entire sentence out. It's not a made-up hospital name. Which, by the way, the actual name that she squeaked out is something that can be said in one or two syllables. I'm not going to say what it is, so people don't Google their life away trying to figure out where this call is. But um, <clears throat> So anyway, it's about 30 minutes away. And the patient also was also asked by the crew, hey, can you take a few steps to the gurney? Because they're not able to get the gurney into the residence. It's a very restrictive entrance. And there are people out there that really don't understand this. Well, actually, like patients, family members, too, that will like call and complain like, oh, they made them walk. And it's kind of like, yeah, like you live in a hobbit hole in a sewer. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I'm sorry, like you had to t- like I would have injured you and my crew trying to aid you out of here. Like I I it sucks. I agree, but like I don't have the option to just leave you in your hobbit hole and I got to get you out. So you're going to have to take one or two steps. And yep. uh but she nods. She's like, "Yeah, I think I can do it." Um didn't say that. Of course she can't. Um but she nods and she makes her best attempt. Uh, however, this attempt isn't the greatest as she starts to go gl- to collapse uh, a few steps in. And so Goose, who is behind the patient, uh, picks her up from under her arms while Patches grabs her by the feet. The fire department, by the way, we talked about that BLS crew. They actually arrived at the same time that the ambulance did. They were just hanging outside because, again, like no one could fit in this phone booth of the living quarters except for the two paramedics and the patient. Uh, so mm-hmm. they were already hanging uh, outside and they were going to uh, and they jumped up and they helped get the patient to the cot and then to the ambulance. So as they got the patient on the cot and they're buckling her in, the patient then goes into respiratory arrest. But she does have a strong radio pulse, but now she's not breathing at all. So, hey. yeah, both the crew members keep their wits about them, though, which is solid. And as they are pushing the gurney to the ambulance, they verbalize, hey, we got to tube this patient. And they set about doing so immediately upon entering the ambulance. So she's a respiratory arrest. But like this is like a handful of seconds, like as they're pushing to the ambulance, because here's here's kind of one of those things like you and I talk about this a lot is that a lot of times it's logistics that fuck up a call. Yeah. Like a lot of times, like we know the protocol, we know like, okay, is what we do for our respiratory patients, those kind of things. But nobody practices like extracting from the hobbit hole during your scenario and those kind of things. And if they were to stop and start begging her right there, you know, in the darkness between the front door and, and the rig, like it would be worse for the patient than just, Hey, push the patient where you can work the patient. We talked about this also in, uh, I see dead people where it's like, Hey, like they're like the one guy tries to start to run a code in a tiny bedroom. And then, uh, the medic who ends up, uh, basically acing the call, just grabs a patient, hauls the patient out, like just drags him by the feet out the living room. Take yeah. two seconds, do that. You're going to have a better call. And that's what they did here. Yeah. They took two seconds, shoved him in the rig, shoved her in the rig and started uh, working on the patient. So, and just for like time framing, everybody understands a little better. 
Like they were in there within about three minutes from arriving on scene, even with having to wait for the dog and getting the Epi on board. Like from the time they arrived to getting Epi on board was about three minutes. Yeah. And then they basically went like, all right, we've got Epi on board. Let's, you know, GTF from here and move to the gurney. And that's when she collapsed. Yeah. So. We're still early in on this call. Yeah, still early in on the call. They just wanted to get her to a place where they could actually work on her, which is absolutely. Uh, so they verbalize that need to intubate. They said about doing so immediately. Goose goes to bag the patient, uh, but the BVM also pulls the ejection seat lever and pops right off the desk. <laughs> <laughs> This may get brought up a few times. Uh, so Goose <laughs> then drops in an NPA, solid move, repositions, uh, same problem, ejection seat again. So at this point, uh, lung compliance is terrible and bronchoconstriction is making positive pressure ventilation difficult. Basically what happens is every time, they, every time they squeeze, which by the way, this is props to Goose for getting a good face mask seal. That's actually a lot harder to do than people realize, getting a good face to mask seal. It's solid evidence you have a good face to mask seal is that when you squeeze, it keeps popping off the bag because there's so much pressure in their lungs because that shows that your seal is really good and air is not just going to leak out that way. So positive pressure ventilation is, is difficult. Uh, intubation, as if it wasn't before, uh, is now super clearly indicated. So the crew is still really confident in their course of action. Uh, so yeah, things appear bad. But they're not out of options yet. They still have a route to go. And so with the help of the BLS fire crew, they prepare to intubate this patient and they add a high flow nasal cannula to the mix and Goose gets his intubation equipment ready and set up while Patches works on getting a line. Uh, Goose then notes that the patient is clenched and they verbalize their plan for intubation, which is good. Spencer and I talk about this a lot. And that is like, talk, like, talk out your plan. Like, what are you doing? It's like, okay. We're pre-oxygenating right now. Good. That needs to be done. Even though she's going to be terribly hard to oxygenate because you can barely back her. Uh, she's a 74 kilogram patient. So they're going to give 10 milligrams of Versed, 20 uh, milligrams of Atominate, and 50 milligrams of Rocky Rhodium. Uh, really quick, there's going to be a few of you listening that are going to be like, that seems like a really low dose of rock because most protocols are going to say one mig per kilogram of rock and she's getting 50 and she's a 74 kilogram patient. We did ask a crew about this. They stated their protocol. I want to say it was like 0.6 or something like that. It's a really bizarre. Yep. It, was, it was an uncommon dose of rock. And so she actually got a little bit more than 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Um, but anyway, they were following their protocol. I, I personally do feel it's a low dose of rock, but um, at the time, and I, I want to point out this call is a few years old. Um, but uh, at the time that was, that was the dose that their physician advisor, medical director was having them give. So that's what they gave. So anyway, uh, they wait for the patient to become flaccid so they can intubate, uh, or that's their plan. You know, they'll, they'll give those meds. They'll wait for the patient to become uh, flaccid and then intubate. All will be well, life will be good. And Hey, she ends up being a hard tube. We got backup. So no big deal, right? Like there, there's a route to go for sure. Yeah. Well, things then go off the rails a bit. So firefighters lock up their engine and leave it on scene, which is bold move cotton, but um, they just lock it up <laughs> and they both hop in one drives, one hops in the back. So they got three people in the back, which is two paramedics. They got a basic and they got another person driving. Uh, the medications are pushed and they start code three with the plan to intubate on the way in. And the crew waits an appropriate amount of time for the paralytic to take effect. Goose attempts and patient still clenched. Uh, <laughs> Goose tries a scissor approach to open the patient's mouth, and no luck. That's because Goose is dead. <laughs> he was never there. 
Goose died. You know so, why he's dead? Because his head hit a fucking injection. Because <laughs> his head hit the cockpit. His head, his head hit a cockpit. Yeah. Chris, he's dead. <laughs> a piece of glass This was just him. happening. This was just happening in Patch's head the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> he's dead to me now. Uh, so even after the rock dose is given, the patient never really relaxes. So they kind of do what a lot of medics do. I mean, they, they try different tools. Uh, goose attempts. It looks like he tried both the Mac uh, and the King Vision with no luck. Couldn't even really get the blade path past the teeth. Uh, they double check their dosages. Uh, which everything is per the protocol. Then, of course, Goose is like, well, dude, like, is your IV good? Like, did you screw the IV up? Because we just gave a paralytic. By golly, she should be paralyzed. Uh, they double check. They get return with, they get Venus return of blood flow. It flushes like a champ. So that's good. Uh, Goose then asks Patches, like, hey, like, do you want to give it a shot? Again, Goose trying to pull that ejection seat. And uh, Patches responds <laughs> by saying, I hope this guy doesn't hate us when we're done with this. Uh, and Patches responds rather bluntly, but totally fairly, by saying, uh, yeah, if you can't get her mouth open, neither can I. So, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, at this point, the crew starts discussing plans to secure the airway, including a crash airway like a cricothyrotomy, as really kind of being their only other option to get in. Uh, they decide to divert to a nearby critical access hospital and have the firefighter alert the hospital that they are just a couple of minutes out with an unsecured uh, airway. Uh, actually, can you go ahead and describe like a critical access hospital? Yeah. Yeah. So a critical access hospital is essentially just a smaller hospital ish out usually in like kind of a rural area. Right. Um, I I don't know the, all the qualifications of what makes it a critical access versus like in a regular emergency room. A lot of critical access places don't have like ICU beds or ICU services, or they don't have like cath labs. They're basically just there like in case shit for a small community um, so that patients can have a place to go to get some treatment uh, where they can start treatments early. It's kind of like a, it's like a step up, but it's like slightly more emergent than an urgent care. Yeah, but you exactly. Might, yeah, I but think you... that's a fair, a fair statement. But yeah. some of them in doing like a little Wikipedia research, some of them do have ICUs and stuff. So like some of them do have more services. Um, but yeah, essentially treat it like a step up urgent care. Mm -hmm. um, except, you know, like th that's not a bad call in my opinion. Like if you have, if you're like, you're like, oh, we have an airway failure. Um, Basically, where's the nearest doctor? Is what it comes like, down to. Yeah, where's the nearest physician and ER team? Where is exactly? Where's the nearest ER? We can go in with an airway, yeah, problem. Yeah. And there's, there's actually like there are some municipalities where that is the that's the protocol. If you have a failed yeah. if you have a failed airway, you go to the nearest hospital, stabilize, and then move on. Uh, and that's essentially what they do. So, right. So as they pull into uh, the ambulance bay of Sweet Baby Ray's Community Hospital and Barbecue, uh, the patient. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. God damn it, dude. Uh, the, here's the best part is uh, both Spencer and I weren't on the interview, but I wrote the episode solo. And so Spencer's reading this as you guys are hearing it. <laughs> so uh, anyway. Um, oh, and also uh, really quick. And there's probably a couple of you out there thinking like, hey, like, why are we jumping from tube to crike? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. We have some thoughts there, too. Uh, so. Right. So as they're pulling in, and by the way, by the time this was occurring, they were about two minutes out 
uh, from Sweet Baby Ray's. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, so they initiate CPR because she codes uh, as they bring her into the ER. And the ER physician, uh, while the patient is coded, is able to intubate. But they also note substantial difficulty opening the mouth uh, to actually get her intubated. So when we interviewed the crew, they stated they assisted in the intubation by having Goose apply caudal traction to the patient's mandible. Those are the biggest words I could find to describe uh, Goose tried to pull open the jaw. And um, which worked. Uh, As far as we know, though, no additional paralytics were attempted at the ER. So the patient was shocked once uh, successfully out of V-fib and received two rounds of epinephrine before they achieved ROSC. So, yay. Uh, they spent about another hour in the ER giving continuous nebulized uh, combivent treatments, which is albuterol and atrovent. Uh, for those who don't know, albuterol is a potent uh, bronchodilator and atrovent is an additive, essentially, I, mean, I guess an additive is one way to look at it, but it's another medication that, long story short, short it helps the albuterol penetrate deeper uh into the lungs so it can work and it dries up secretions and all of that stuff too sweet Sweet. yeah so there you go that's come of it uh so the doctor then comes back and says hey you guys uh we're gonna go ahead and try and get her transferred to st francis of mountain state university medical center hospital which was the original hospital that uh, they wanted to take her to because again this is a critical access hospital something else about critical access hospitals they don't typically have as much experience in emergent patients as your normal ER is. Uh, critical access hospitals are, are fairly uncommon for ambulances to go to, and they're usually gone to in either something minor, like I took a patient there once, it was a lady who fell who fell on her hearing aid, broke in her ear, and there was a piece of hearing aid in there somewhere we couldn't get out. Yeah. And so we took her to a critical access hospital. Um, or it's the complete other end of the spectrum. I can't get an airway on the super critical patient. I have to go to the nearest hospital because my protocol says to. So I'm going to the critical access hospital. So they kind of they kind of had they're kind of in a rough spot there. It's either nothing, which is what they get most of their experience on, which is minor stuff. Or it's, you know, like this hellacious patient that like the medics like need help with, which is never good because most medics are like Man, I don't need help. Uh, so <laughs> the fact that I'm like, I need help. They're like, shit. Uh, so prior to transporting, the crew calls for additional resources. Uh, their original fire crew that rode in with them bounced because you got to remember they've been there for an hour now. Uh, yep. For the transfer, that ends up netting them a fire department employee to drive the ambulance while Goose and Patches are in the back caring for the patient. Uh, the crew inquires about starting a mag and epidrip with the physician or giving solumedrol. Uh, the ER physician stated that the ER would give the solumedrol, which is a steroid, and the crew were just to continue uh, nebulized combivant uh in route and this is where i think the doctor's totally wrong i mean i agree i think all right yeah maybe like i don't know what the stability is of the patient maybe they're really worried about you know like the epidrip or maybe she's hypotensive and they're worried about the mag but like come on like well i don't think she i mean let me go back and check that let me go back and check their vital signs i don't think she i think she was actually a, a perfect candidate vital signs wise I think gotcha. she was, yeah, she was heart rate with 123, blood pressure 108 over 64, and title 60. Um, I I think she's a candidate then probably for all of those things. She is. I I think the medic crew had the absolute right idea. I, I just wish the doctor hadn't stopped them. <laughs> I think that's, uh, and I don't know how it works over there. There are some municipalities where unless the doctor rides along, really the doctor is just making a suggestion. 
Um, there are other municipalities where if the doctor tells you, hey, like this is what you're going to do, this is what the receiving doctor expects, you would then need another doctor's permission to change that. Um, so I, I don't know, and unfortunately I didn't ask, I don't know how it works, uh, over there, but ultimately the doctor said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And so they, they maintain that treatment on, on the way. Yeah. In. Depending on, I think this is just an easy, you know, low hanging fruit, depending on where you're at. Like if the sending physician is clear, like you strongly feel that the sending physician is wrong in their orders, mm-hmm. that would be one where I would. I would contact the receiving facility and right. go like, Hey, this is so-and-so said, don't do this, but I really feel like this patient would benefit from a mag and epi drip. This is, you know, this is what we have to do that. And, and then getting another doctor's opinion on it. If they both say no, then your hands are tied. You've, 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 you've tried everything I would in this case, yeah. I'd call somebody else. So. Right. So, uh, and even though the patient was intubated, she was still very, very hard to ventilate uh, on the way in. So it was like squeezing a football, I believe is the way they described it to us. Uh, the hospital's ventilator kept giving the overpressure alarm before they started transporting. So the option, they opted just to go ahead and bag the patient uh, on the way to the hospital. Uh, oxygenation was fine. It was at 100%. I've never seen 101, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> at 25 liters per minute through the uh, BBM. Uh, but end tidal CO2 continued to rise, and the pa- and bagging the patient got harder and harder uh, as they went on. Compliance was just less and less. So because she was so hard to bag with long inspiratory phases, it was really difficult for the crew to maintain both high oxygenation and at the same time reduce end tidal CO2. Because you got to remember, high end tidal CO2 usually means you need to bag faster to get it down, but you can only bag so fast when the lungs are non-compliant. So they attempted to ventilate quicker, but that resulted in the SAO2 dropping down to the 80s, which she really doesn't need to be more hypoxic than she's already been today. So the crew was once again kind of stuck in a hard spot. So after several days, they got, so they got her, uh, you know, they did patient care and turnover. Patient gets admitted. Uh, so after several days, the patient unfortunately just keeps deteriorating. The condition degraded until the family elected to have her removed from life support. Uh, per the crew, the patient was determined to have a brain injury from from uh, substantially high levels of ETCO2 that they just weren't able to correct at the larger hospital. The patient's lungs also began to bleb. Um, and bleb is, by the way, it's my it's one of my favorite medical terms for one reason, and that is it bleb is legitimately the term that's not medical slang, and it just kind of perfectly describes what it is. Uh, I just I think it's the <laughs> best word for it. And basically, what it is is when you have when uh, lungs continue to uh, get, when they get too much pressure, what happens is the alveoli, which are these, uh, you know, little sacks. Small in the lungs. sacks. Yeah. yeah. It, it look, they look like grapes. Uh, when they get overpressured, they tend, they break down. They, they rupture, essentially. They pop, I guess you could say. And what ends up happening is air then kind of goes in between um, tissue, uh, layers of tissue in the lungs and it creates a little pocket of air in there. And that's called a bleb. And I just, again, I just love the term bleb. I mean, it's, it's terribly lethal, but, um, it, you know, and so in the lungs, but it's a fun, but, but it's such a, a fun term. Yeah. But it's a fun word to say, um, such a fun terminal term. Yeah. And here's the, and having, having a couple blebs here and there can, can happen to people and life is fine. But if you have a patient whose lung compliance is poor and the lungs keep blebbing, eventually you're just going to have, you're just, the lungs themselves are going to be destroyed and if they're still not able to correct her entitled CO2 and that continues to go on, like she's uh, unfortunately her lungs have just 
failed. So uh, yeah. eventually, yeah, eventually her family says, yeah, we're going to unplug her from life support. And she and she passed away. So let's hit on kind of the tease that I left at the beginning. And that was there was something that occurred here that both Spencer and I did not even know was a thing. So they gave this patient rocky rhodium and then nothing happened. Now, while that was actually a, uh, well, that was actually like a smaller dose of rock than what we'd give now to have nothing happen when you give rock is rare. That's pretty rare. Yeah. I mean, super (laughs) rare. Yeah. It's super rare. And here's the thing though. There are reports and there have been, uh, there's enough literature on this to where there, it's like, what is it? Like one out of every like hundred thousand people or something like that. I didn't find any specific ratio, but I found enough case reviews where people were like, for whatever reason, we gave this dude rock and then nothing happened. And then we gave him more and nothing fucking happened. So there is a small percentage of the population out there where rock uranium doesn't work yeah i mean i sort of i sort of wondered that uh early on in my career not with rocky ronium but with like succinicolin because i remember specifically reading in our uh protocol book for the ground ambulance uh reading about doing a repeat dose of succinicolin should the first one not work Hmm. um which is funny because like I have one ground ambulance that is like, yeah, just go ahead and repeat it. And then another protocol book is like, yeah, but whatever you do, do not repeat the dose of succinicoline. <laughs> right. Which I, I like, you will murder somebody. And I'm kind of going like, oh, you should tell that to my other protocol book. Right. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, in reading about that, I it kind of, you know, put a thing into my brain like, oh, by the way. Sometimes when you give a medication, the thing that you think will happen won't happen. And then you should have a plan for that. And I think this is one here where like everybody sort of relies like Rocky Ronium is like, it's all reliable. Like, yeah, if there's one medication that's going to work, it's probably your paralytic until it isn't. And then you should have a backup plan. In this case, I think what happened was that they kind of thought that the, you know, the paralytic was going to do its job. Mm-hmm. And I think they probably anticipated a tough airway, but I, I think that was that totally threw off their entire plan was yeah. not having the paralytic work. And then, cause there wasn't any, there wasn't any other action taken to try and mitigate that. Like, okay, should we give another dose? Because that might've been called for, I yeah. don't know what their protocols allow for. Um, you know, do they have another paralytic? Now, in talking to them, I know they didn't have another paralytic, that they just moved from succinicoline to rocuronium. And I don't think they were carrying both. They, they um, weren't. I think they are now. But he, I did believe he specifically stated at that time they this was the only paralytic available to them. Yeah. So, I think that's really the lesson to to take from this is like, yeah, that was a bad situation and my hat's off to like their performance because that would throw anybody who wasn't ready for yeah. that. And I think a lot of people would find themselves in that situation. Um, I just scared myself early on by reading, <laughs> reading something in a book and going like, what do you mean? I might have to give another, like, why right. would I have to give it? What do you mean? The first one wouldn't work. Um, 
so I think that's just one of the things to kind of have in the back of your mind is like, you know, there will, in this job, there's always going to be something that just crop up randomly to try and prevent you from going from A to B to C to D, you know, suddenly C won't work. And you're like, well, I can't do D without C. And you'll need to figure out a way to do C. Side note, this would be a good patient for DSI. Right. I don't know. We've had we've we've had some calls where DSI has come up, and there's been a lot of people who are like DSI versus RSI. But this would be a good DSI patient if you can try to take the time to try mm-hmm. and get their oxygenation up beforehand. You know, sedate them so that you're not fighting them. Although, again, right. yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is sort of a moot point because she is sort of sedated already. They're already trying to do the things and they're not able. I take well, that back. RSI. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and, and I think that's kind of the, and that's the route that they're going in there. They're trying to uh, innovate this patient. But I also want to point out, this is this is from a, a few years ago. And nowadays, most people would say like, look, if you can't get oxygenation up, fixating on getting a patient tubed isn't going to be your answer. Because uh, statistically, not necessarily is. Uh, if you if you're not getting good BVM compliance, if you're not getting those things, dropping in a tube doesn't necessarily magically fix that. So a lot of protocols are now saying like, look, if you can get SA, if you cannot get SAO two above ninety four percent, then you slow down and try and oxygenate until you can. I don't know why ninety four percent. It's a line drawn in the sand somewhere. Someone said ninety four. Maybe there's some backing behind it. I don't know, but that's a common number. It's ninety four percent. Yep. Then and then, if you cannot get them above ninety four percent, consider a crash airway, because what's going to be worse for this patient is if hey, I can't get them above ninety four. Let's, let's say they're eighty nine percent, and now I'm going to dick around in an airway that we knew going in was going to be tough. I mean, we did interview them. They said the airway was. I mean, it even you know even before it was clenched like just it's not it's a, it's a tiny mouth with a big tongue you know like it's just not yeah. the greatest airway and so at the time they were running this call a lot of thought was you tube first and then when tube fails then you jump to a crash airway now we're starting to see medicine move more towards like look if there's a high probability of of intubation being difficult and you can't get their sats up high enough so your intubation is going to have to be done quickly then what you're probably going to do is even if you get them innovated, they're going to they're going to desat fast and they're going to be super hypoxic. And you're going to be like, yes, I got them innovated, but I gave them an unanoxic brain injury on my way in. And so a lot of times now what a lot of the protocol is saying is get their sats up first. If not, crash airway that. And so yeah. we do kind of move into a little bit is when the airway failed, they kind of went from, all right, tubal, you know, the next thing has got to be a crike. And, uh, you know, I should be crike. And on, on one hand, I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, I mean, a crike is an option, but why not drop a king at that point? Well, so here's the question, because I also thought about this, um, you know, like tube versus crike versus king, which one should they go for? And, you know, my first thought is you try and get the sats up the best you can, mm-hmm. and then you go for the crash airway, you know, uh, with the tube. Um but you, this is a patient that you want to have, like, you want to have the crike kit out. You want to have, like, you want to be ready to go to do it. Because if you're not even able to get their mouth open to get a laryngoscope blade in there really well, like, you're probably not going to have a whole lot of luck jamming a king in there. Like, if she's That's still true. clenched That's after the rocuronium. Um, I think that would probably be difficult. But... Uh, 
you know, in the three minutes that they tried going to the hospital, that might have been the three minutes where you you go like, you know what, fuck it, we're going to try. Like, yes, we will still divert to the hospital because, like, God help me if I don't do this right. Mm. Um, and it's a really, like, it's a low-frequency procedure. For yeah. instance, I have never done it. I would be stoked if I leave never having done it. <laughs> but there will come a time probably yeah. at like fucking 3 a.m. when I'm least prepared where, where right. it'll be like, all right, cut this neck. And I'll be like, God damn it. Now's the time. Like shit. And I won't be ready for it, but I'll have to do it. Um, and then I think this is, that might be some criticism here is like, I don't know what that time was spent. If they were just continually trying to bag her despite it or, you know, like well, what, I, what modifications they were making to try and stumble through those those few minutes when they you know abandoned the attempt to get to the critical and and were moving towards the critical access hospital, but a crike probably should have been on the menu. Yeah, um, uh, and I think it was right for them for them to discuss it. From what I recall from the interview and from what I'm reading here, though, it does sound like by the time they realized, look, the innovation thing isn't going to happen. I mean, it looks like it was like a five minute transport anyway, like from scene to the critical access hospital. Oh, and gotcha. Gotcha. Time, I, I may have. Yeah. All yeah. Right. And and by the time they're like, all right, this isn't going to work. They're like, well, we're a minute out. Like at that point, do you stop and try and crack with a minute more to go from an ER? Like I probably wouldn't. I'd probably no. be like, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to. It might be. It still might be the, the most correct thing to do because that's another minute that mm -hmm. the patient is not breathing well, oxygenating well. Cause I think there's also this thing of like, I don't want to like roll up be like, Hey, we're a minute out and I tried a King and we just, or and I tried a crike and we just fucked it up and now I have a bloody mess of a throat. Here you go. Critical access hospital. Like, I think there's, there's that too. That would probably drive me away from really wanting to crike this patient. But, um, yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about, I think a little bit of some of the challenges that they had with the BVMing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, th this is a really tricky pa This is a tricky patient on a ventilator. This is a, a really, really tricky patient with mm -hmm. BVMing, especially if you have to do it like, you know, with one person holding it down and trying to get that seal and bagging. Um, you really do want to make sure you're trying to give that long expiration time to exhale because the patients, asthma patients tend to air trap. Yeah, they do. Um, and so like, as you're, as you're stacking, you know, you're, as you're breathing for them with that positive pressure, you're adding, if you're not giving a long enough time for them to exhale, then you're essentially adding pressure into their chest that you then have to work against every time you bag, um, to the point where you're not going to be able to get any gas in there anymore. And then it's all just, you know, bad and downhill from there. Um, so one of the, one of the tips is like, you might have to go with a higher pressure for the uh, like short bursts of higher pressure um, for those, for those first breaths um, or excuse me for like the, the first part of that breath, you know, breath followed by long exhalation so that they can actually get as much of that air out. Some medics have gone by the, you know, like, Oh God, this patient is crashing. I can't breathe for them. And they've actually just like, done sort of a forceful exhale on the patient's chest where they've, you know, like pushed, pushed. down yeah. uh, and tried to do like a force exhalation with, again, some people reporting good movement. I don't know. 
maybe it's good. Right. <laughs> maybe something to try in those like horrible situations. Uh, follow your medical director's advice. Well, here's kind of the way that I think that their plan kind of kind of where the, where the, this fell apart uh, a little bit. You know, and again, I'm going to iterate right along with Spence is it's super easy for us to armchair quarterback this shit. Um, but here's kind of where I think things may may have been different. Uh, what had kind of happened was so they got on scene and whenever you're presented with a call, you have different roads to take. Right. And all roads lead to success. But some of these roads are going to be blocked. Maybe all of them will be blocked. Uh, the first road to success for this patient was nebulized treatments. Well, she was already on her own nebulized treatments when they got in there. Um, second, uh, which the caveat to that, though, is that uh, it's a good idea to go ahead and swap out with your own because their shit can be expired. But uh, second thing, <laughs> yes. but, uh, but another quick road that they jumped right on right away is going to be epi because, again, and that was a perfect call on their part early epi, you have a patient whose lungs are super tight. They're not going to be compliant with the medications you want to try and give through the lungs. She's young. You don't, there's not a lot of reasons to not give epi for this patient. And they nailed it. They came in prepared with epi and they gave it right off the bat. So they used that. So that was one road they took. Well, that road didn't get them all the way there. So they needed to go ahead and jump on the next road. And the next road uh, for them in this case was going to be uh, positive pressure ventilation. They attempted that with a BVM after she went to respiratory arrest uh, with already intubating in mind and the BVM just non-compliance. I mean, she was so, so high pressure in the lungs that when they squeezed the bag, it popped off the mask, which again, good face mask seal, bro. Um, <laughs> God, I want to put another goose joke in there, but I think we've beat that horse. Uh, we have beat the goose <laughs> joke. <laughs> we have beat the goose joke as hard as goose's head beat the canopy of his cockpit. <laughs> Uh, I still don't know why he didn't pick Maverick. Um, but right. So, so they, so, all right. So they're going down these roads and the next road is positive pressure ventilation with a bag that doesn't work. And they start moving towards, uh, intubation, which is totally fair for this patient. And they start going down the intubation road and she's clenched. So that road's locked. So now they got to go down the RSI road. We're going to go ahead and, you know, use our rapid sequence induction medications and those kind of things. Then we'll get there, and that road's blocked. And when that road was blocked, they really had no more paths to take. Here would be my suggestion. Now, given in their particular scenario, there's a time crunch. Because one thing you got to remember is by the time they got down that blocked road, they're pretty much at the critical access hospital, and it's now some doctor's patient, and it's it's his call to fuck up. But um, which he does, yeah, which, which he does. Um, but. What if, if things were a little bit different, like if they had more time or if you are a paramedic listening to this and you run into this in the field, go back to other roads and try them again. So if you have a road that is blocked and it's innovation, go try a road that's open. For example, what roads are open? What treatments can you effectively deliver? In this case, you cannot really effectively deliver albuterol or bronco, uh, uh, nebulized bronchodilators very well. I'm not saying you should not. You should try still. I think that was a right move by yeah. the doctor is, is keep trying them. But those are going to have a problem being effective because those require lung compliance to work. But Epi and Mag don't. I don't know what their protocols are, but 
the protocols where Spencer and I work is we can repeat epinephrine. And I would say that is one of the things that really should have been done early on for this patient is instead of giving one dose and then moving on from that road, keep giving the epinephrine. And this is one of the parts where I would feel that I think this is probably a fair point to kind of deliver back to the crew. And that would be is that innovation by itself was not going to save this patient. Yeah. And I think and I think there's evidence of that is we even when the patient was innovated, innovated and bagged, they still weren't able to get the numbers that they really wanted. And what she really needed was ventilation. And one of the things that I will all, always say is innovation does not equal oxygenation and ventilation. It doesn't. Innovation equals a tube in a throat. If yep. the problem is past the throat, innovation will not necessarily fix that. It can definitely help and definitely take control of your airway and it can help you deliver. Uh, it's basically another road you open up to deliver other treatments. The main treatment being positive pressure ventilation. But in this particular case, they had another option that was to keep repeating epinephrine on the way in or set up an epidrip uh, or mag sulfate. Do you want to talk a little bit about mag sulfate since we've gotten a lot of questions about mag? Yeah, so in our last episode, and this actually is kind of the perfect tie-in for it, um, uh, we had a listener who emailed us uh, and said, like, hey, I was a little disappointed that magnesium sulfate wasn't brought up as a treatment for, you know, the patient. And remember, last week's patient, patient was, you know, similar in that she was going to die, but uh, the crew had a little more time and neglected to give epi, one of the questions was, you know, would mag sulfate have played a role? And mag sulfate is a pretty cool drug. Uh, so how it works is uh, that it competes with calcium uh, for these, you know, like smooth, uh, for your smooth muscles. And by doing so sort of like essentially slows down the contractile force of smooth muscles such as like bronchioles um which means that it's just another medication that can have sort of a bronchial dilating effect um it's pretty safe and so far it looks like it's fairly useful um in all the studies they've shown uh and they're very they're, they're small studies there is a conquer and review that says that hey if your patient has moderate to severe asthma uh, excuse me, not albuterol. Mag sulfate is like, that's good stuff. Um, but I guess that's still sort of controversial because there haven't been any major studies done with it that I could find to mm. validate it. Um, so I think it's one of those medications that it definitely works. Um, the listener, Matt, said uh, that he's had a lot of good use with it. Um, there's been a pretty big push with all the COVID stuff happening and we're not trying to nebulize, you know, aerosolize <laughs> potential <Right>. COVID <laughs> in the back of an ambulance. Hey, um, everyone, I just made a COVID cloud. <laughs> come dance. Yeah. Waltzing in a COVID wonderland. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of push to like, you know, like they've switched out to like meter dose inhalers and there's bigger pushes now to start epi early and to go to uh, mag drips um, for more severe patients. Uh, and those are all going well. Apparently there's, you know, minimal side effects, flushed feeling, um, but no one has become like, you know, incredibly hypotensive and, you know, suddenly stopped moving. <laughs> all right. that good stuff. So <laughs> good. I, this is one of those where, again, 
thank you guys for emailing in because um you know I, mag sulfate is not a medication that i uh i don't think i've ever given it for uh asthma it's kind of one of those that i know it's there but i've just never dusted it off the shelf and played with it um so it's nice to have you know crew members who have more experience with it emailing in and uh letting us know how bad we suck Right. Uh, I have one final point to make on this on this particular call. One of the things that I saw here is that at one point Goose uh, says, uh, you know, he's going to innovate and he's seen those patches like, hey, like, do, do you want to take a look at this? Uh, and then Patch is like, well, if, if they're clenched, then they're going to be clenched for me, too, um, which is a totally fair response. Uh, in this particular case, my advice about what I'm going to say doesn't really apply. I want to keep it. Want, want you guys to know that these are two paramedics with a lot of experience. They've been working together uh, quite a bit, and so this this doesn't really necessarily apply to this crew. But if you are a more senior medic, especially if you're working with a newer medic, and you hear that like someone's like, "Hey, uh, they're clenched. I can't get in." It's like, "Okay, I'll keep working on it." And then they're like, "Well, do you want to take a look?" A lot of times, that may be a passive aggressive way of someone who's just not confident in what they're looking at. In that case, if you're a more experienced medic, like, go take a look. doesn't really apply to these guys. They've been working together for a long time. I don't think they'd have a problem with direct communication with each other. Um, but I would say that that's what I was re- first reading. It was before we interviewed the guys, and I was first reading it, and I saw that. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's kind of a passive way of saying, like, hey, dude, like, you've got more experience in this. I think it's I think it's that they're clenched, but I'm not 100% sure if it's me or the patient. Um, that's how, yeah, that's how I ask for help on scenes. Like, it, it hey, ha- well, uh, yeah. yeah. You, yeah, you want to the- check it out? You, you want to see? I mean, I, I don't, don't need it, but as a favor to you, you know, if you want to, <laughs> you, you know, check it out. Oh, gosh, yeah, this, you know, that wasn't there last time. This blood pressure is 120 over 80. You want to check it out? Make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, people do ask for help in this way. People do ask where uh, they're, what they're really saying is, you know, they've been like, yeah, if you want to check it out, that's kind of their way of saying, like, maybe, maybe you should. Um, like, I'm so. not sure what I'm really looking at. It seems like it's this. Yeah. Please tell me it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and again, after interviewing these guys, I don't think that was the case here. Um, but no. uh, just be on the lookout for that as you kind of go forward. Uh, but with yeah. that, I don't have anything else to add. Spence, do you? <sighs> no, man. I think right. uh, I think we got it. We both want to so, say it. <laughs> Chris, both, why don't we, you take us awkwardly out? Uh, we, I think we both just want to kill this episode. Um, yeah. And one way, and if you ever want to kill an episode, <laughs> just pull that handle. Yeah, pull that handle, <laughs> smash it into La- the canopy, launch us into a canopy. All right, uh, but yeah, if you would like to interact with us, please do. We are on social media at EMS twenty slash twenty on Facebook. We are EMS twenty twenty show on Instagram. If you'd like to email us, it's EMS twenty twenty podcast at gmail dot com. A listener recently pointed out that our email was screwed up on Instagram. So if you've been trying to send us emails through Instagram. I apologize to whoever, to whoever has been getting those, but it wasn't us. Uh, so, uh, with that, <laughs> uh, it's just I didn't know that. That's amazing. Nope. Yep. Yep. Someone said, uh, hey, uh, you say on the show your email is this, but your Instagram says it's this. And the Instagram was wrong. And so I'm like, <laughs> oh. Well, it's this. So thanks for letting us know. I think it was just a dead email. I hope it's a dead email that just goes nowhere. But there's some person like, the fuck are all these? Why, why are people sending me these? God, calls? I am I'm never calling 911. <laughs> Jesus. 
right. Well, with that, we are uh, done with today's podcast. In that case, uh, don't talk to me, Goose.